Hey listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm really excited for today's episode where I am doing a book review on one of my favorite books called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Immortals by Oliver Berkman. I really appreciate this book and this author because I love his mindset. I love his perspective on time management and what time is and that work-life balance that we're always trying to achieve and productivity. So he's super sarcastic. He has a great personality in his writing and he compiled so much data and research and information and put it into this book in such an easy way to understand. I read it nearly straight through and that's super rare. Um, So today I'm going to tell you guys the story of how I found this book, read you a few passages out of it, and discuss those. And then I'm going to tell you a funny story about a time that I recommended this book to somebody. So let's get into it right away. This is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. So how I found this book was I was at Barnes & Noble, which is one of my favorite places to go when I am needing advice or growth or I'm feeling confused. I make a day out of it. I treat myself by going to the bookstore going to the section and looking at the bookshelf and letting the books pop out at me, letting spirit guide me in what lessons do I need to learn. I'd normally go with a question or a feeling and the books speak to me. And so back in June of 2022, which is this year, I was going through it emotionally and I ended up buying about 10 books this day and this was one of them. What stood out to me about it was that the book is in black and white, except for the subtitle, which is Time Management for Mortals, that is in highlighter color. And the word mortal really is what dragged me in. I was like, what does he mean by that? And when I just like flipped open the pages, I read like a few sentences I saw and felt his personality right away. I was like, yes, this is a book that I'm going to read and I'm going to enjoy. And it absolutely was. I'm going to read to you about two and a half pages. Um, It's the first chapter called The Limit Embracing Life. And I'm going to show you why he's such a great author. Just sit back and listen and enjoy his perspective. So here we go. Chapter one, The Limit Embracing Life. The real problem isn't our limited time. The real problem, or so I hope to convince you, is that we've unwittingly inherited and feel pressured to live by a troublesome set of ideas about how to use our limited time, all of which are pretty much guaranteed to make things worse. To see how we got here and how to escape into a better relationship with time, we need to rewind the clock, back to before there were clocks. On balance, you should definitely be grateful you weren't born a peasant in early medieval England. For one thing, you'd have been much less likely to make it to adulthood, but even if you had, the life that stretched ahead of you would have been one defined by servitude. You'd have spent your back-breaking days farming the land on which the local lord permitted you to live 
in exchange for giving him a crippling proportion of what you produced or the income you could generate from it. The church would have demanded regular contributions as well, and you'd have been much too scared of eternal damnation to disobey. At night, you would have retreated to your one-room hut alongside not only the rest of your family, who, like you, would rarely have bathed or brushed their teeth, but also your pigs and chickens, which you brought indoors at night. Bears and wolves still roamed the forest and would help themselves to any animals left outside after sunset. Disease would have been another constant companion. Familiar sickness ranged from measles and influenza to bubonic plague and St. Anthony's fire, a form of food poisoning caused by moldy grain, which left the delirious sufferer feeling as though his skin were burning or as if he were being bitten by unseen teeth. Time before timetables. But there's one set of problems you almost certainly wouldn't have experienced. Problems of time. Even on your most exhausting days, it probably wouldn't have occurred to you that you had too much to do, or you needed to hurry, or that life was moving too fast, let alone that you'd gotten your work-life balance wrong. By the same token, on quieter days, you would have never felt bored, and though death was a constant presence with lives cut short far more frequently than they are today, Time wouldn't have felt in limited supply. You wouldn't have felt any pressure to find ways to save it. Nor would you have felt guilty for wasting it if you took an afternoon break from threshing grain to watching a cockfight on the village green. It wouldn't have felt like you were shirking during work time. And none of this was simply because things moved more slowly back then or because medieval peasants were more relaxed or more resigned to their fate. It was because, so far as we can tell, they generally didn't experience time as an abstract entity, as a thing at all. If that sounds confusing, it's because our modern way of thinking about time is so deeply entrenched that we forget it even is a way of thinking. We're like the proverbial fish who have no idea what water is because it surrounds them completely. Get a little mental distance on it, though, and our perspectives start to look rather peculiar. We imagine time to be something separate from us and from the world among us, an independent world of mathematically measurable sequences, in the words of the American cultural critic Lewis Mumford. To see what he means, consider some time-related question. How you plan to spend tomorrow afternoon, say, or what you've accomplished over the last year. And without being fully conscious of it at first, you'll probably find yourself visualizing a calendar, a yardstick, a tape measure, the numbers on a clock face, or some hazier kind of abstract timeline. You'll then proceed to measure and judge your real life against this imaginary gauge, lining up your activities against the timeline in your head. Edward Hall was making the same point with his image of time as a conveyor belt that's constantly passing us by. Each hour or week or year is like a container being carried on the belt which we must fill as it passes, if we're to feel that we're making good use of our time. When there are too many activities to fit comfortably into the containers, we feel unpleasantly busy. When there are too few, we feel bored. If we keep pace with the passing containers, we congratulate ourselves for staying on top of things and feel like we're justifying our existence. If we let too many pass by unfulfilled, we feel we've wasted them. If we use containers labeled work time for the purposes of leisure, our employer may grow irritated. He paid for those containers, they belonged to him. The medieval farmer simply had no reason to adopt such a bizarre idea in the first place. Workers got up with the sun and slept at dusk. 
the lengths of their days varying with the seasons. There was no need to think of time as something abstract and separate from your life. You milked the cows when they needed milking and harvested the crops when it was harvest time. And anybody who tried to impose an external schedule of any of that, for example, by doing a month's milking in a single day to get it out of the way, or by trying to make the harvest come sooner, would rightly have been considered a lunatic. There was no anxious pressure to get everything done either because a farmer's work is infinite. There will always be another milking and another harvest forever, so there's no sense in racing towards some hypothetical moment of completion. Historians call this way of living task orientation because the rhythms of life emerge organically from the tasks themselves rather than from being lined up against an abstract timeline. The approach that has become second nature for us today. What I personally translate from that text is that humans have moved away from task orientation mindset where we're just living for today, getting things done as they are presented to us, and we've moved into a mindset of productivity against time and like he mentions the conveyor belt we're constantly thinking about getting more things done quicker and speeding ahead to this fake destination it doesn't exist we're never going to get there and he gives the example of the farmer trying to do a month's work of milking in one day that is just you know not necessary and so it doesn't have to be necessary for us now skipping ahead to chapter four it's called becoming a better procrastinator and i think that's really funny really cute and easy to remember so enjoy these passages from him and we're going to talk a little bit about this um so skipping into like the middle of a paragraph i'm going to start it says the core challenge of managing our limited time isn't about how to get everything done that's never going to happen but how to decide most wisely what not to do and how to feel at peace about not doing it, which we all know FOMO is a thing, and so this is super relatable to everybody. Continuing, he says, procrastination is some kind of inevitable. At any given moment, you'll be procrastinating on almost everything, and by the end of your life, you'll have gotten around to doing virtually none of the things that you theoretically could have done. So the point isn't to eradicate procrastination, but to choose more wisely what you're going to procrastinate on in order to focus on what matters most. Letting that sink in, um, yeah, we have this anxiety around not getting things done, and if you just remember, you're most likely not going to get anything done in your life, you can chill. Um, it's, it's funny. You have to read this book. You, you have to, to let him carry you through this changing mindset that you're going to have to adopt in order for this to even maybe resonate. Maybe it does resonate with you now. Um, but yeah, I, I love the way he carries you through this. Again, we just skipped to chapter four. Um, here we go with, he, 
he explains an experiment that's been done first things first and it was written in a book Stephen Calvey's 1994 so a teacher arrives in class carrying several sizable rocks some pebbles a bag of sand and a large glass jar he issues a challenge to his students can they fit all the rocks pebbles and sand into the jar the students who are apparently rather slow-witted try putting the pebbles or the sand in first only to find that the rocks won't fit Eventually, and no doubt without a condescending smile, the teacher demonstrates the solution. He puts the rocks in first, then the pebbles, then the sand, so that the smaller items nestle comfortably in the spaces between the larger ones. The moral is that if you make time for the most important things first, you'll get them all done and have plenty of room for less important things besides. But if you don't approach your to-do list in this order, you'll never fit the bigger things in at all. Okay, very true, but he, uh, the author points out the flaw in this argument. He says, the teacher has rigged this demonstration by bringing in only a few big rocks to the classroom, knowing they'll all fit into the jar. The real problem of time management today, though, isn't that we're bad at prioritizing the big rocks. It's that there are too many big rocks, and most of them are never making it anywhere near that jar. So the critical question isn't how to differentiate between activities that matter and those that don't, but what to do when far too many things feel at least somewhat important and therefore arguably qualify as big rocks. And then he goes ahead and says, fortunately, a handful of wiser minds have addressed exactly this dilemma and their council uh, coalesces around three main principles and he goes and talks about those which you know you need to get the book and read but how interesting is that turning back the pages to his first pages of writing which is his introduction it says in the long run we're all dead so listen to this this is where he gets the book title from the average human lifespan is absurdly terrifyingly insultingly short here's one way of putting things in perspective the first modern humans appeared on the plains of africa at least 200,000 years ago and scientists estimate that life in some form will persist for another 1.5 billion years or more until the intensifying heat of the sun condemns the last organisms to death. But you, assuming you live to be 80, you'll have had about 4,000 weeks. Certainly, you might get lucky, make it to 90, and you'll have had almost 4,700 weeks. You might get really lucky, like Jeanne Calment, the French woman who was thought to be 122 when she died, making her the oldest person on record. Calment claimed she could recall meeting Vincent Van Gogh. She mainly remembered his reeking of alcohol, and she was still around for the birth of the first successfully cloned mammal, Dolly the Sheep, in 1996. Biologists predict that lifespans within striking distances of Calment's could soon become commonplace. Yet, even she only got about 6,400 weeks. Expressing the matter in such startling terms makes it easy to see why philosophers from ancient Greece 
to the present day have taken the brevity of life to be the defining problem of human existence. We've been granted the mental capacities to make almost infinitely ambitious plans, yet practically no time at all to put them into action. This space that has been granted to us rushes by so speedily and so swiftly that all save a very few find life at an end just when they are getting ready to live. I might not have said that right. Lamented Seneca, the Roman philosopher, in a letter known today under the title On the Shortness of Life. When I first made the 4,000 weeks calculation, I felt queasy, but once I did recovered i started persisting my friends asking them to guess off the top of their heads without doing any mental arithmetic how many weeks they thought the average person could expect to live one named a number in the six figures yet as i felt obliged to inform her a fairly modest six-figure number of weeks three hundred and ten thousand is the approximate duration of all human civilization so all of that to say he made this calculation of 4,000 weeks. When you put your life into the perspective of weeks and you think you only have 4,000, ma'am, no, that's not enough. Like, how many weeks have I wasted? How many weeks have I already lived? Like, half of them? Um <laughs> It's scary. It's a scary thought. You could think of how much you can do in a week and sometimes how fast weeks fly by and 4,000 weeks just seems like not enough. So to me, the biggest takeaway from this book is live your motherfucking life because weeks be flying by, time be going faster as we get older and we don't have time to waste. <laughs> so hurry up and enjoy it. Just enjoy it. No, I'm just kidding. Just chill and enjoy your life because it's flying by. Okay, guys, if you've made it this far, this is the last passage that I'm going to read you from the book. It's going to be quicker than the last two. And then I'm going to tell you my funny story. So, you know, I do thank you for listening. And I hope that the passages I chose did enlighten you a little bit. I hope that it motivated you to want to purchase this book. And showed you, like, the author's wit and his perspective a little bit. Please go buy the book in person from a bookstore. Don't buy it on Amazon because Amazon you know, has closed so many bookstores and as someone who loves, loves, loves bookstores, you know, I don't want to see the last few close. So go pick up this book and here's the last passage for today. He says, 4,000 weeks is yet another book about making the best use of time, but it is written in the belief that time management as we know it has failed miserably and that we need to stop pretending otherwise. This strange moment in history when time feels so unmoored might in fact provide the ideal opportunity to reconsider our relationship with it. Older thinkers have faced these challenges before us and when their wisdom is applied to the present day, certain truths grow more clearly apparent. Productivity is a trap. Becoming more efficient just makes you more rushed and trying to clear the desks simply make them fill up again faster. Nobody in the history of humanity has ever achieved work-life balance, whatever that might be, and you certainly won't get there by copying the six things successful people do before 7am. The day will never arrive when you finally have everything under control, 
when the flood of emails has been contained, when your to-do lists have stopped getting longer, when you're meeting all your obligations at work and in your home life, when nobody's angry with you for missing a deadline or dropping the ball, and when the fully optimized person you've become can turn at long last to the things life is really supposed to be about, let's start by admitting, admitting defeat. None of this is ever going to happen, but you know what? That's excellent news. Love him, love his perspective, and I'm going to tell you my funny story now. So I'm working at the club, you know, people ask me the same questions all the time, like what's your name, where are you from, like what do you like to do, you know, when you when you work nightlife, you're having the same conversations over and over and over again, and it drives you crazy, so, you know, I like to stay true to myself, I am honest with people, I don't really like to lie, so I do end up just talking about myself, and I don't always want to do that with strangers, so I end up being like, hey, you want book suggestions? Um, some are takers, some are like, no, I'm at a club. But anyway, one guy named John um, was interested, and I and I gave him the book suggestion, and he happened to remember it. And about two weeks later, I'm at work again. Like, I see him. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's up? It's such a surprise to see you here. He's like, I came back to tell you that that book changed my life. I went, I read it, 4,000 weeks, couldn't forget it, changed everything. He's like, you got me into reading and writing again. It, it inspired me. He's like, I am 45 and I haven't really been reading or writing since I was 25. And I, I loved books and I love philosophy. And this book unlocked so much in my life. And I guess it's not necessarily a funny story. The The comic part is that, you know, he gave me a few hundred dollars that day because that book changes life. So if you work nightlife, recommend this book. They're going to come back. They're going to love you. They're going to owe you their life and they're going to give you all their money. Thank you so much if you made it all the way to the end of this podcast. That was 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. Go pick this book up in stores now.